Jesus has challenged his hearers with uh, the character of the citizens of the kingdom, with the mission of the citizens, with basically the, the standards for citizenship. He's talked about some of the obstacles that have to be overcome in following out kingdom righteousness. He's had some things to say about uh, judging and about discerning, but I think he comes to uh, seeking to encourage us in this. It's pretty overwhelming some of the things that he's taught and some of the you know things he's challenged us to and uh, some encouragement comes in handy uh, 7 through 11 ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find <coughs> knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a snake? Will he? <laughs> if you then, being evil, know how to good give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Alright, so he says to ask, seek, and knock, and he promises that it will be given, you will find, it will be open. Now, you know, people sometimes take this completely out of context and and with really no good reason if you're if you've been reading through this sermon then what kind of things is he expecting us to ask seek and knock for it's not that corvette i've always wanted probably not him him and his righteousness look at for example 633 but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. I mean, that's what we'd be seeking after reading this sermon. We'll be, ask, we'll be, be asking for. Asking for maybe his help in, in, in following this out. Um, and we'd be knocking to try to uh, receive the strength to do what he tells us to do. So in the context... We're thinking about these spiritual goals of the kingdom and we're being reassured that there is help and hope and, and that there's a way to receive the things that Jesus is telling us to strive for. Um, and he gives us a lot of encouragement because who is able to receive and find and uh, get the door open? Everyone. Everyone who asks and seeks and knocks. God, the righteousness of the kingdom is accessible and available to everybody. God is going to give to those who ask and seek and knock those kingdom uh, blessings that they, they seek. He says, it's kind of like your father's. You know, if, a son, if your son asks you for a loaf, like a loaf of bread, would he give him a stone? Maybe some stones might look a little like a loaf of bread. But what father would ever play such a cruel joke on his, on his son? Or if he asks for a, a fish, will he get a snake? Some fish might look kind of in the shape of a snake or whatever, kind of slithery and, you know, whatever. And, but no, you know, you're not going to, to treat your children so cruelly. Well, what about our Heavenly Father? Willie... If you look at the contrast between earthly fathers and heavenly fathers, what does he show the difference as being? 
that by comparison, the earthly ones are evil? Yeah. You know, you, you are evil fathers, and yet still you give good gifts to your children. Well, your father who's in heaven, clearly he's not evil. He's a good father. You would expect him much more promptly to give good gifts to his children. It's interesting that the Lord doesn't exactly flatter these people, does he? <laughs> you know, he's not among those who believe that all men are basically good and, you know, all that. He says, you being evil know how to give good <clears throat> gifts to your children, then you can certainly trust the Heavenly Father to do that. God be more generous than earthly fathers. So I think this is just really encouraging the people that it is possible uh, to attain to the, these standards if you will ask, seek, and not. God will see to it that you can. Comments and thoughts on this? Someone noted the kingdom of heaven is not for the deserving, but for the desiring. Good. That was good. Yeah, I like that. <coughs> Other thoughts? <coughs> All right, verse 12 um, sort of summarizes and uh, uh, kind of wraps up uh, this part of the sermon. He says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, that's pretty easy to understand, you know. <coughs> Don't treat people, you know, how they treat you. Treat them how you want them to treat you. You treat them well, regardless of what they do towards you. Now, if you stop and think about it, that kind of summarizes a lot of what he said in the sermon. I mean, it summarizes the relationship we ought to have with other people. You know, if you really followed that rule, well, that's the law and the prophets right there. I mean, in uh, a few short words, that's what he says to do. I mean, when he says, you know, not to kill and not to steal and not to bear false witness and, and uh, you know, various things to do and not to do, it's really just an application of the idea, do to them what you'd want them to do to you. It's amazing how Jesus can take such really involved concepts and sum them up so concisely and clearly. And you might consider 5.17, when he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. That starts in this whole... This, kind of the introduction to this whole kingdom righteousness section and he sort of wraps it up then in verse 12 of chapter 7 when he says this is the law and the prophets. Really what Jesus taught was the fulfillment of the message of the law and the prophets. And uh, so I think 517 to 712 sort of becomes a unit. This is the this is kind of the guts of the sermon. <laughs> you know the standards of the kingdom uh, in, in this section. All right, comments or questions uh, on verse 12? Well, the end of this is an exhortation uh, to enter uh, the narrow way that Jesus has spoken about, and he gives some very strong teachings, kind of uh, imperatives to, to make application of what he'd been saying. Would somebody read 13 and 14? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. 
for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Okay, what does he tell us to do? <clears throat> Enter. Yes. Not consider, not <laughs> admire, but make the decision and, and enter. Um, it takes some commitment and some initiative to do what the Lord says. And he says to enter through the narrow gate. Can you see why the other gate and way are more popular? Based on everything that he said so far. Okay. He's, he's narrowing. He's been narrowing the gate. Yes, he has. So why is it more popular to go in the other one? It's easier. It's easier, exactly. It doesn't require self-discipline. It doesn't require effort. You can do what you want to. It's not confining. It's not restrictive. It's popular. It's more inviting. It's more comfortable. You know. Whereas you go in where what he said, it is very, uh, you know, demanding. You know, he's been really narrowing the gate and, uh, and the way. And, and a lot of people just don't like uh, to have to confine themselves like that. You know, I want more liberty. I want my space. Uh, well, we can have it all right. That Broadway's got plenty. But... You can never take a road and beg off at the end as far as the destination is concerned. If you take the road to the end of the road, you're going to end up where that road takes you. There's just no way around it. So you go, you enter that wide gate and you go down the broad way, what's the destination? Yeah. And Jesus very plain about that. Jesus speaks a lot more about eternal destruction than anybody else in the Bible. He, has a, he just keeps coming back to that theme. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and, and, and there are few who find it. I like the term find. It's, it's like you have to search for it. You have to really seek for that. Nobody said that you just kind of randomly stumble across it and just kind of fall into it. You know, the people who get into that gate and go down that way are people who are really intent on, on seeking and finding it. Um, but it's so much better because it leads to life. <clears throat> you know, maybe we don't have the um, determination to go through the narrow gate and go, go down the... Uh, the narrow path because we don't see the need. We don't see where we're at. I mean, do you, are any of you kind of semi-claustrophobic? Yeah, me too. I don't, I'm not traumatized exactly, but the thought of being in a cave with a very narrow, you know, way out does not appeal to me. Uh, there's a lot of things I'd rather do than that. Um, and I, I think I would, I've never gone into a cave like caving. I mean, I've been into caves like, you know, where you just walk in, it's a tourist attraction. But, uh, you know, caving stuff, ugh. Uh, but I can imagine going through a very narrow passage if I was trapped and there was only one way out. 
however narrow that might be, however much it might cut me and scrape me, and however much I might have to contort my body, if that's the only way to go out, get out, I think you'd do whatever it took. If we only saw our plight, we'd be glad there was a narrow way. You know, there wouldn't have to be any way out. So I think we need to look at it from that standpoint. Comments and thoughts. I think we don't. I think the problem is we don't see our plight. I, I think mm. most most of us, people in general, when you get down to some of these passages, just like we're going to see in verses twenty-one. You know, through 23, that you know, many are going to be surprised on that day. They're going to say, "Lord, Lord." Um, you know, people were funny. If you talk to people and you start saying, narrowing things down, they're, most of them are fine. If you say, you know, all world religions lead to the same road, um, they might be fine. If you start saying, well, you know, Christianity, Christianity's the way, and the denominations are the way, or whatever. I mean. But when you start narrowing down, saying Christ is the way, this is, there's one way, people really want to back off from that because we don't, and maybe it's our fear of being, you know, too narrow or, or what. But you know, Gary, I think you're right about this. I mean, I mean, really, it, it's going to be sad when this life is over um, because a lot of people are going to be surprised that we did not count the cost, that we did not really consider the value of our soul. It's going to be a sad day. It will. In view, of, in view of a passage like this, it's amazing how many people seek to be broad-minded, isn't it? <laughs> Most of the time that's not a good thing. Can the, can the word narrow also be uh, understood to be uh, hard? I mean, I think a narrow way is hard. Yeah. You know. The straight gate is into straight narrow. Yeah. I think straight there means narrow, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, kind of confined. Confined, yeah. 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 Not straight like GHT, but just T. Like you say, claustrophobic, <coughs> narrow. Yeah. You know, we kind of get upset at the idea that, you know, truth is narrow and we have to be sort of narrow minded when we approach God, but when we're doing a math problem, we don't. Really, uh, we're not surprised to hear that there's one right answer and billions of wrong answers. Um, you don't think that way, but uh. yeah, students uh, probably wouldn't get very far accusing their algebra teacher of being narrow-minded, <laughs> only accepting one answer to the problem. You know, <laughs> uh, that's usually true with anything that has to work. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, you don't want a broad-minded mechanic <laughs> or. Uh, you know, contractor or plumber or something or like that. Engineer. Yeah, we we generally we generally allow the broad-mindedness only in the social sciences where it really doesn't have to do anything in particular. Uh, so that might tell you something. All right. Well, fifteen to twenty. Beware of the false prophets who come in to you or who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Alright, what's Jesus warning about here? False prophets? Yeah, the false prophets. And um, what do the false prophets generally preach? Something that's just a little off. Yeah, and usually off in what sense? <coughs> the sense that sounds better. Yes. Sounds better, that is, sounds how? Easier. Easier. More comforting. More positive <coughs> and uplifting and encouraging. Broad-minded. Yes, fa <laughs> false prophets are usually popular. You know, people usually find their messages inspiring. <laughs> and uh, they how do they look? Hmm. Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah. Kind of, uh, they go around in their uh, sheepskin and, uh, you know, they, they look very innocent. They look very, uh, you know, like you can trust them. But appearances are so deceiving. I don't care what the wolf dresses up in. I'm a lot more concerned about his uh, ravenous nature than I am about his costume. But we so often look, oh, that person looks so good. You know, that person looks so righteous. And, and uh, you know, we're, just, we're really uh, bad about that. I just got a text a couple days ago from a guy. I don't know where this is at. This guy doesn't live around here. and You know, I don't know about the guy he's studying with. I assume he's not a Christian from the context. But he, he, he said in a text to me about this guy. He said he'd had a great study with him. He said, man, he knows the Bible like the back of his hand, and he's so sincere. Well, I don't know. He may be. But you know, you ever say that about somebody? You know, oh, he's so sincere. Well, how do you know? <clears throat> so he's he's obviously a Christian then. If he knows the Bible and he's sincere. Well, yeah, I, that's kind of what I was thinking. It's like, well, that's interesting. I, you know, I don't know. God knows sincerity, but I'm not a real good judge of that. And you know, sometimes people are, are obvious about their insincerity. But but just because somebody you know has a manner about them that is very winsome, they've got a charismatic personality. Uh, just because somebody maybe sheds tears and and talks about how much they love God and how much they feel about Him and how much they love you and, and you know people can can say a lot of stuff that that makes them sound really good but they didn't prove they're they're teaching the truth you know we've got to be more discerning that we we we're gullible sometimes in that we fall for the disguise and we don't really examine what we ought to be examining and and he he immediately switches figures here to to deal with that you know what do we need to examine about a prophet their fruit not their costume so we've got to get deeper than what they look like and what they say about themselves and examine their true nature. Now, when we talk about looking at their fruits, you'll know them by their fruits. Well, what does he mean by that? 
I mean, how is that any different than looking at what they look like? Takes time. Well, <coughs> what do you look for? In a, what, what's the fruit? It's what they do. Oh, it's what they do. What do you mean by that? Well, it's more than their words and appearance. It's their actions. Yeah. One thing is you look at their life. And, and the teacher who doesn't live the truth is not trustworthy. Uh, character counts. And, uh, you know, regardless of how nice they say things, if you know in their life they're not living it, then be very watchful, be very wary of that. Um, you know, because, because their life shows you a lot. Now, I might put a, a kind of a however on that. This is not foolproof in the short run. Look at 1 Timothy 5. I think this has to be taken into account. Uh, certainly, their life matters, and their life may tell you they're a false prophet. But 1 Timothy 5.24, the sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Now, I think his point is, some people you can tell right on the surface, they're a scoundrel. Some people, it takes longer before the fruit really manifests itself, and you can really tell they're insincere. And so, just because you start getting to know somebody, and they seem to be manifesting good fruit in their life, it just takes longer for the true colors to reveal themselves in some people. I also think there's more to this examination of the fruit than just looking at what they do. What else is involved in the fruit of a false prophet? What they teach. I think so. You know, because what all, all, always our words come from what? Our heart. Our words are a revelation of who we are. If a person teaches things that are wrong, it's fruit that manifests a bad heart or perhaps simply ignorance. But, but the, the fruit of a teacher is in part his teaching. And we always have to go back to the word of God to determine is this person teaching the truth or not. There is a tremendous slogan. I don't know why we don't use it more. In Isaiah 8, this just ought to be a, a slogan that, that we just cling to. We, we tend to come up with our own slogans and the Bible ones I think are better. Uh, Isaiah 8.20 is great. To the law and to the testimony. That ought to be our constant appeal. To the law and to the testimony. What does the word say? And if it says something different from what the false teacher, what the teacher is saying, then don't trust him. His fruits are showing you that there's a bad tree beneath the facade. What do people who run orchards do with bad trees? 
kindling? Yeah. <laughs> they don't stay around long. Uh, and that's the way the Lord's going to be. Those bad trees are going to be cut down. So I think that's a very insightful passage to really look at uh, the, the, you know, danger of the false teacher. Comments and questions? I'm just trying to think of, <coughs> I don't have a lot of experience with fruit trees. Good fruit and bad fruit in, in the literal sense of a tree. What, what's, What's an example of bad fruit? Another, uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, he would give the example in 16, you don't get grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. I'd say thorns and thistles are a bad fruit. Because mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, you know, like you just, she just said worms. So if you've got wormy fruit, is that the fault of the tree? Or the... <laughs> Or the gardener, or, you know. Yeah, but, but I think we're here saying, you know, trees that... I mean, there might be some kind of tree that's diseased, that it just gives off really lousy fruit. Mm -hmm. But it may just be, it's, it's you know, this tree gives off poison fruit, or it gives off thorns and thistles, or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that'd be more the idea, that it's, it's just really a poor quality, you know, tree. And I was thinking that, you know, if you're looking at the fruit, the fruit will have a seed in it. And when that seed is planted, what does it produce? It's going to produce a bad tree after it. So if we're looking at long-term fruit inspection. Yeah, you're right. That, that whole, uh, what does it produce? What does the bad, what does the fruit produce? And if it's something that's bad, you may not need to go back to the source tree. Mm -hmm. Good point. I agree. Other thoughts? It doesn't seem to be addressing necessarily the fact or the uh, <clears throat> idea whether or not the false prophet is intentional in these things. You know, there's still a ravenous wolf, regardless of what their intent is on that. I mean, if, if they're a false prophet. And also, I think along with that is the idea, we sometimes read this and it's like, oh yeah, he's, you know, he's a wolf dressed up because he knows he's a wolf. Well, that may not be the case either. You know, the false prophet might be a wolf, but he doesn't know he's a wolf. He just, <laughs> he's doing what he does and thinks, you know, so that there's, you know, I sometimes look at this like, oh yeah, well you can pick him out because, you know, he's gonna have that wolf strapped over him, but he's still gonna have the fangs. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not sure the fangs, uh, he's got that kind of flesh too. Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, there's tremendous power of self-deception. So, you know, we'll see in the next section. You know, these guys seem to really think they were okay with God when they weren't at all. So that, that's, that's very true. I mean, sometimes a, a, a wolf may not, may, he may actually have come to buy into the, you know, sheep uh, concept as well. He thinks he is. I will say this, though. Don't discount the, the deceitfulness of men either. There are a good many false teachers who know they're false teachers. They know it in the sense they know they're making merchandise of the gospel. They know this is a joke to them. Or they, some, even know what they're teaching isn't true. But 
they, you know, want to be popular or they want the money or they want whatever. I mean, I think we tend to sometimes think, well, everybody basically is doing what they think is right. Well, that's not true. There's a ton of people who aren't doing what they think is right. Uh, but, but still, it's a point well taken that it doesn't really matter if he knows he's a wolf or not. It, the fruit shows whether he is, even if he's never examined his own fruit. And the fruit also, I mean, there's not one specific thing. It could be anything. That could be part of it, too, looking at their lavish life that they're living based on what they're Certainly. Doing. Looking at their kids, looking at their friends, looking, you know, just anything that is a product of who they are and what they do is their fruit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you think that, I mean, sometimes you hear preachers try to make, I mean, gospel preachers make a distinction between those who are cunningly knowing what they're doing as wolves, they're, they're set on destroying, and the person who is in ignorance, who uh, doesn't really understand that he is lost, sometimes they make a distinction between the one who is genuinely a false teacher and a wolf and the one who is uh, sincerely deceived. Would you buy that line of argumentation? Or? Well, in terms of this passage, what difference does it make? I mean, I don't know that the psychology of the teacher changes <laughs> the effect. I mean, if a guy really, really believes that he's teaching the truth, but he's teaching error, I mean, I, I think that... There's so much to why we teach certain things. And that, that I think there are a lot of people who have great ability to deceive themselves. They really believe that they've studied this. They really believe they've followed the truth. It reveals, though, that they don't have good character. Um, but, but they may really, I mean, they may be, you know, really believing that this is right. I mean, I wouldn't argue that, that all false teachers are in, intentionally deceiving, but, but I don't think it changes how dangerous they are. In fact, maybe a guy who's actually swallowed his own line may be even more deceptive. I, I, I think a, a, the best salesmen are people who are a little shallow sometimes and who you know, are easily convinced that they're marketing the best product in the world, whether it is or not. You know, because if you, if you really believe it yourself, it's easier to sell it. So, if he really believes it, he's probably more dangerous. Well, Paul, he really believed, Paul did, and people still got persecuted whether or not he was in ignorant about the fact that he was a ravenous wolf. People still got hurt. Stephen still died. I think definitely it is still dangerous whether or not we know that we are a danger. Yeah, good, good point. I don't know if, if part of it comes with what are you going to do with the knowledge that this person is a false prophet if they are a wolf, a knowing wolf, you're probably going to have a difficult time convincing them but if they are just in ignorance, they might be teachable. Maybe. I mean, yeah, maybe so. Uh, you know, I, I think 
tried to teach and we'll let the results show that. Here, his point isn't, you know, how to reach the wolves. <laughs> his point is, watch out for them, beware of them, and steer clear of them. So his point here really for us is just a warning about the danger to us of these false teachers. With the false prophets, I mean, the thing that we think of, at least I do think of immediately, is <coughs> we're talking about a preacher or a leader in the congregation who is leading people astray. But that's not the only way you could apply this, is it? No, I mean, uh, false prophet, I mean, I don't know that he'd even have to do this in the congregation at all. I mean, he may have, you know, people he talks to wherever. Uh, so I, I think this is pretty broad. Other thoughts? All right, how about 21 to 23? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is a really disturbing passage. You know, really, this is more along the lines of self-deception. And it says that the judgment day is going to be a day of surprises. And not all, all of them will be good ones. And so I think it really makes us think. And the fact that these people apparently didn't realize what the verdict was going to be makes us a lot more impactful. And these were not people, evidently, who just were knowingly defying God. And, and their protest shows that. Um, and and they were relying on some things in verse 22 that were not adequate and I think we need to stop and think about what really makes us a follower of Christ and what will gain us acceptance on the judgment day and what won't I mean what is it here that he says you need to truly be a disciple and enter in the kingdom of heaven. You have to do the Father's will. It's very, very simple, in, in, in principle at least. But think about things that are not signs necessarily that you've entered the kingdom. You know, from, from verse 21 and 22, how about uh, claims? of kingdom activity. You know, saying, Lord, Lord, and saying all the things we've done. That doesn't count. It's whether or not you do the will of God. What about outstanding achievements? I mean, look at what these guys have done. Prophesied in his name, cast out demons in his name, performed many miracles in his name. I mean, in Matthew, do you usually see prophesying and casting out demons and performing miracles as positive things? Yeah. Yeah, those are good things. Um, and, and so often we think that if I've accomplished some good thing, that surely God's okay with me. Well, it's possible to accomplish some great things and not be right with God. You know, it's, it's almost like saying they had great results. They were very successful. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're okay. A lot of people think that if they're able to accomplish some great spiritual victory in something, that that trumps the need for constant daily obedience. But it does not. All right, so you converted, you know, the Queen of England or whatever. You know, you, 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 you made some great... Wonderful thing, you, you, you wrote a book that everybody read, or, or you, know, you preached the sermon that everybody repented at, or whatever. Does that mean you're automatically okay? No. You can, you can have great success. So uh, these things really make us stop and think, am I doing the will of God, or am I relying on things that you would on first blush think would be guarantees of, of kingdom entrance? Comments and thoughts on that kind of a good thing that prophesying, casting out demons, and performing miracles is not the criteria, since we don't do those <laughs> yeah, good these point. days. Yeah, good point. We could transfer that into, uh, you know, other things that we do do, and taking meals to the sick and preaching a good sermon and whatever. Isn't it amazing how close <coughs> to almost the reality of spirituality you can get and still be lost. You know, you think about, I mean, wow, you take these guys in verse 22, you would think they are guaranteed to be saved. What about Judas? You know, think about all he did, all the sermons he listened to, carrying the money bag for the disciples and being one of the chosen 12. I mean, that must mean he'd cast out the demons and, and he'd healed the people and so forth because he sent the 12 out two by two and, and all that. After all that, after being so close to the Lord, you know, he was lost. Um, so that, you know, I, I think it just really, really should make us think a lot uh, it, about those things. Um, you know, there, there are people who, who think they're right, you know, who are, who are not. Yes. Cameron. Oh, um, it's not only that even if we do a good thing and afterwards we can do bad things and ruin that but if we do a good thing in the wrong attitude like the um the seven seven sons of Sceva seven sons of Sceva in Acts 19 um they were doing a good deed if they were doing it with the right mindset but they had the wrong mindset about it and so they were beaten right there for it yeah good point of uh, Jehu, too. Yes. He did all of God's commands for his own motives. And yes. It looks great when you read it there, but then he's condemned later on. You're like, well, what did he do wrong? It's, it's what about a guy, around. what about for us, a guy who preaches great sermons, but he doesn't live it? Why would you preach a great sermon if you're not going to live it? So everybody tells you that you preach great sermons. Absolutely. <laughs> There are some reasons somebody might do that. And, and you can think about other things like that, where there are ulterior motives sometimes. Uh, and, and we really need to be serious about that. Go back to verse 12 again. So you kind of contrast the great things of verse 22 with the <coughs> non-noticeable, more less noticeable things of just treating others the way you want to be treated. Yeah. Yeah, we, we would rather do 
things that seem more spectacular and that get us more attention, wouldn't we? Kathy? Good. Um, something I see that kind of bothers me is I, I constantly see people who think that they're like set for when they die and they think that, okay, well, I believe in heaven, so I'm set. And I believe that there's a God, so I think that, you know, I'm fine. And the thing that really bothers me about that is that I see those people not trying. And I see, I see those people sinning, but not really caring. And it's like, I mean, if they can get into heaven, I mean, pretty much anyone can. I mean, whenever I see people that really, really try to serve as hard as they can and try as much as they can to really please God, then I feel a little bit better about, you know, how much they're trying and maybe feel a little bit confident, of course I'm not the judge, of, you know, what that's going to be like for them. Other thoughts, right? Do you think that's the point in James where it says pure and undefiled religion is, you know, taking care of orphans and widows, not that you know, that's the secret, but that, you know, doing good things that couldn't possibly come back to benefit you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you're, you're sacrificing and, and doing things that are not attention-getting and they're not, uh, you know, they're not self-gratifying. And, and that, that's what really tells us, you know, who we are. You know, what do you do when nobody's looking? <laughs> So this is, I mean, this is a pretty strong, I guess, warning against self-deception. Um, so how do you improve your motives? So do you take them to the Lord, like David did in Psalm 51, ask God to give you a clean heart, a pure heart, just things you don't see, things that maybe aren't the best motive that you don't realize? How can we purify our motives? Well, I think those things are good. How about just doing God's will, period, not just seeking to do the spectacular? I mean, we're just way too. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if we're. I'm for sure how much attention getting was uh, the point of this. But I think we're way too concerned about that. We're way too concerned about what people are thinking of us and what kind of impression we're leaving. And, you know, things like that. And those are not the key elements for us. Okay, Gary. Did, okay. That's good and true. So, okay, it, turn off the tape for a minute. Uh, no. <laughs> um, I mean, did you ever struggle with that? I mean, did you, did you ever have a problem with that? Have you, do you ever, have you feel like you've come over, overcome some of that? Well, yeah. I mean, definitely. That's... Uh, you know, seeking to please people and impress people and thinking about what they're thinking about me and, you know, all that has affected me and sometimes has, you know, changed my behavior, what I say or whatever, because I think it's going to be more popular or, you know, people are going to like it more, people that I want to like me. Those are, those are constant challenges and temptations. I mean, I, I think the Lord's helped me to overcome some of that, at least. As you just get to where you're focused more on the Lord, and you try to get to where you're not thinking about yourself and what this might mean for you, you care about the Lord and His will, and that's what you really want to accomplish. 
Um, so I mean, but but I think that's a definite definite problem. Other thoughts? Yet at the same time, we can be confident in our salvation. How well, does that tie in? <laughs> well, I think it depends on who we are. <laughs> uh, if we're doing the will of the Father, absolutely. I mean, you know, seek and you'll find. Ask and it'll be... I mean, he's not. this is not saying that, you know, salvation is impossible or anything like that. It's just saying we need to do what the Father says not just uh, rely on some great spiritual accomplishment somewhere along the line. If, if we're seeking the Lord, we'll find it. He, he's guaranteed us that. And I guess then that we can evaluate ourselves whether or not we are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he's going to tell us in this next section, here's, here's what we've got to do. You know, uh, so 24 to 27, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house. And it fell, and great was its fall. So, um... Just, uh, he's been talking about the difference between saying and doing. Here he talks about the difference between hearing and doing. You know, what are we doing with what Jesus said? Are we just admiring his sermon? You know, wow, this great sermon, great lesson. Or are we, are we putting it into practice? And, and he describes these two attitudes as two builders. And, you know, what does the foolish man do to build his house? sand as a foundation. Yeah, so he just builds the house. <laughs> Gets it done quick. What does the wise man do? Thinks about where it's at and plans how it'll work out and build on a rock. Yeah. Now, how are you going to build a house on a rock? Slowly and painfully, probably. Yeah. It'd have to be a big rock. Well, what do we do? We're concerned about, you know, the, the structural integrity of our houses. What do we generally have to do? Pour a foundation, dig a foundation, pour. Dig and pour and all that kind of stuff. That's exactly right. Can you see your footers? You know, do you don't ever see them, but you need them. So it, it's a whole lot easier just to build from the ground up. Get done fast. Already living in the house and that other poor soul is still sweating and toiling and one thing and another. It's It's... The, the, the thing we've got to think about is in the storm, in the calamity, it's going to show who we really are. Have we just been listening and admiring or have we been putting in, this into practice? If we obey what Jesus says, it's back to Ariel's question. If we obey what Jesus says, then we've got a good foundation. We don't have to worry about the storm. You know, because we're, we're built solidly on the rock. Um, but if all we've done is listened and admired and, and said some nice things, it's like uh, Ezekiel talked about in Ezekiel 13, the whitewashing the wall. You know, there's this crumbling wall. 
put a nice coat of whitewash on it, how does it look? A lot better. How, how is its, uh, you know, uh, ability to stand? Whitewash does not have a whole lot of binding power, you know. It doesn't really help it at all. It's still about as rickety as it was before. It's just a nice looking rickety. And so we really need true foundation obeying and not just listening. You know, hearing sermons can be dangerous if we don't put them into practice. You know, loving the Sermon on the Mount can be dangerous if we just love it and don't do it. And it's interesting, um, verse 27. The rain fell. What else fell? The house. The house. <laughs> and great was its fall. What a terrible way to end a sermon. <laughs> and great was its fall. <laughs> How would we like for a sermon to end? Please come to the front as we stand and say. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that how we have to end? Yeah. Or does that count? Yeah, that's pretty close. We do. Yeah. Um, um, one well, of them in Revelation was, and her smoke went up forever and ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but but I mean, the end of the sermon part before we tack on the the extension of the invitation. What do we want? We always want to say something positive and hopeful, uplifting. You know, something motivational. And you can do it, and God will be with you, and you know whatever. I mean, to end this great sermon with, and it fell. And great was its fall. You know, he ends with the finality of judgment. You know, this didn't end with some strain of consolation. The fall was horrible. Sometimes we are too concerned with, you know, sugarcoating things and making them sound good and appealing. And sometimes we just need to leave people with the stark reality of the great fall of that house of the one who didn't obey what they heard. How many people today would say, um, oh yeah, I know I need to change. That was sure a good sermon, sure stepped on my toes. Well, I get the impression every once in a while when somebody says that, that the pain of having the toes stepped on it's considered to be sort of purging. You know, I, I took my medicine. You know, now I feel better. You know, but I'm not going to change anything. But it, it's your hurt. So it's like we paid the price. Well, does it do any good to have your conscience stepped all over if you never, you know, change because of that? I think, I think it's one of the most frustrating things is when, when we have heard and we know and we just don't do it. All right, comments and questions? This reminded me of the end of Malachi, where it ends with the curse. Yes. Yes. And you remember the Jews, they never ended with, with that the, verse. Yeah. They went back to the mm -hmm. second to the last verse and read it again. <laughs> they did that with about four or five books of the Old Testament <laughs> that ended on a bad note. They didn't like doing that, so they'd go back and reread the previous verse. <laughs> We just don't like ending with something stark.
Well, it would have been easy here to just like tell about the good house last, you know? But yes. <laughs> it's not that way. Yes. Jesus, he defies uh, convention. Cameron. This parable here about how he builds up real fast, as you're saying, but he's going to fall whenever trials come. Remind me of the parable of the um, sower, and when the seed that falls on the rocky ground, it'll grow, sprout and grow up fast. Whenever the um, sun comes out and it's hard, they'll fall away. And I don't know, this just really made a connection to me there. Yeah, good point. All right, chapter 7, verse 28 to 81. <coughs> So it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Okay. Remember, we said that this is the first of five sermons in Matthew, and all the sermons end with the same first six Greek words when Jesus had finished something. So the sermon in 5 to 7, the sermon in chapter 10, the sermon in chapter 13, the sermon in chapter 18, the sermon in chapters 23 to 25, either the last of that chapter, the first of the next or whatever, when he ends the sermon, it always says, when Jesus had finished blank. Some of the translations don't translate them totally parallel, but they are the same uh, in the original language. Uh, so this is the end of this first great sermon of the book of Matthew. And how did the crowds view what Jesus said? They were amazed. Yeah, why? He spoke with authority. Yeah. What does that mean? He didn't have to refer to someone else or point out their power. Exactly. Or the quote, quote anyone. Exactly. The scribes footnoted everything they said with an appeal to some great rabbi or doctor of the law or whatever. When Jesus spoke, who does he quote to justify what he says? He says, but I say to you. Verily, verily, I say to you. That's all there is. Uh, so Jesus clearly is in a whole different league than the scribes. And that amazes them. He uses first person. Yes. And, 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 you know, he, he doesn't ever, um, he's not ever um, self-doubtful, you know. And they would say, you know, I think it's probably this way, but I'm not so sure. You know, you just see Jesus very matter-of-factly, very calmly, but I say to you this, you know. He knew he was speaking the words of God. I mean, he was in a different category than any other man's ever been. And I mean, that's where it really gets annoying, these people who say, well, Jesus was just a really good man. Well, if he wasn't the son of God, he was a really arrogant man. Because he was claiming that everything he said was law and gospel. We usually don't like the smart alecks who do that when they don't have, you know, the credentials. So either he was the son of God, or he was really not a good man. Other comments and thoughts? All right, let I have me. A question. Good. Um, 
you know, you're talking about, you know, you like to end sermons on a positive note, or you like to do this, or you like to do that. Um, you know, I guess the thing of, that I always, that I struggle with, or a lot of it I struggle with, but one of the things I struggle with is, at times, I don't know how much, what I want to say, how I want to say this. You know, I know that you can beat people to death. I mean, you can beat the life out of them um, by always fussing. I, 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 don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say. How can we preach more like Jesus? Just by doing, just, here's the Word of God, this is it. I mean, There's nothing better than what he says. Right. I mean, just preach it like he says it. It's where it's so good when you just go through the text of the Bible and just teach it. Because, you know, there's, I mean, everywhere I turn in the Bible, it's like, I would have never said it that way. <laughs> well, but he said it much better. I mean, his way's the right way. Well, the result was that great multitudes followed him. Yeah. You might have thought, well, he really turned a lot of people off. They didn't want to hear that. We are so reluctant to challenge. And we are so concerned to make sure everybody feels good and, and their self-esteem is bolstered. I just don't see that constant preoccupation in the scripture. There's a whole lot of things the Lord has said to people that would have not been self-esteem boosting. You know, think about the prophet's messages. I mean, think about what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees and things like that. Um, you know, when, when we're fixated on, you know, I want to make sure this person feels good. You know, it's kind of like thinking only about a doctor's bedside manner. You'd like for him to have a good bedside manner. You know, all of the things being equal, but I'll tell you what. I hope he's a good surgeon. You know, bedside manner or no, I want him to know what he's doing when he gets in there and operates. And, and you know, we focus more on, on the manner than on the content. And, I mean, we leave people sometimes who are clearly not being what they ought to be, feeling good about themselves. Now, that's not our call. And I'm not saying we ought to be, you know, rude and, and, and unkind. There's certainly plenty of passages teaching us that the servant of God must be kind to all and gentle and, and, and patiently recovering those who've been caught by the, the devil and so forth. There's a balance. But I think we're way skewed on the side of, you know, making sure everybody feels good. And not nearly insistent enough on the word of the Lord. Thoughts, comments? Yeah. All right, let me say a couple things about chapter eight, and then we'll stop. Um, I just want—I just think before we uh, do this, in about three weeks will be the next time I'll be here. Uh, re remember what we're dealing with here. And this kind of